Good morning. I'm Kristen Claussen. Today we will be reading from Matthew 10, verses 16 to 25, which can be found on page 815 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 10, 16 through 25. At the conclusion of reading, um, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and you can respond with thanks be to God. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, if you're wondering if we try to plan one theme throughout the service, you just got your answer. The answer is no. To go from community and passing of the peace to persecution and everyone's going to hate you feels pretty dissonant, I understand. But let me just kind of say, as I try to like make some sort of connection to that, um, I think it's appropriate in Christian community to live in really complex places. It actually matches your life, so it's not unusual for us to both celebrate and then say something that's hard. And I think the ability to stand in complex places in community is essential for us. It's not, important, it's not more important than Jesus or more important than walking by the Spirit or more important than God's Word. But I think as we walk together in complex places in community, we learn how to follow Jesus. We learn what it means to walk by the Spirit. We get a chance to apply God's Word into lots of different places. And so it felt worth it to me, even though I knew there would be some like, uh, complexities and some ups and downs and some roller coaster of emotions. Um, it felt worth it to me just to even name that and then to ask that you would engage this text with me, even the way the first hearers would have engaged it. Because if you hear last week, it actually ends on a a pretty exciting note. They're promised power, and they're told they're going to be welcomed into different cities and shown hospitality, and then it goes right to hostility. So, So I think the disciples actually would have been experiencing something of what we just experienced. And so let me just say one other thing. When we talk about persecution in the American church, I think we have some challenges. Um, There's a temptation as a pastor to traffic in guilt and shame and to say that you should be suffering more than you are and like to push that as if it's something to be pursued. 
I think there's a difference between avoiding suffering and pursuing it for some sort of identity. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to traffic in shame or in guilt because we're not experiencing suffering. Although as I say that, I realize many of you actually are. Like this has been a really challenging time and our culture is changing really rapidly. So even in your immediate families, when you hear that the children turn against parents, that sounds like Thanksgiving and Christmas as you're holding on to a certain view of God or the culture and your, your adult children are drifting from that. Or maybe it's the opposite direction. Maybe it's at work. And so I don't want to pretend there isn't any suffering. Although when we read a passage like this and we think about what's going on around the world, we realize the kind of persecution and suffering that the world normally historically has experienced has been quite a bit different than what we've actually engaged with here. So, so I want to avoid um, kind of shame and trafficking in that. I also want to avoid like cheap applications and just making talks about persecution to any level of frustration or stress that you have. I, th- I think you actually can make some application from something really heavy and big. It can be applied to something really small. But we have to understand why it's so important to something like suffering and persecution so that we can make sense of the sense of anxiety or frustration or tension that we have. So we want to avoid quickly just loading in our normal American inconveniences and calling that persecution. That's not actually persecution. What he's talking about here is hatred and violence and imprisonment and loss. And I think we would kind of acknowledge those days might be coming for us maybe sooner than we would like. And it is true around the world, but but we want to um, say what's actually true from the text and then make some application to, to our lives. So I just want to kind of be clear with that. When I talk about persecution, don't just fill in your annoyances. This is deeper than that. This is because you claim the name of Jesus. Because you stand at work and say, hey, that's actually not in line with a God who made us, and it would violate kind of the, the human dignity to say or do that. So I won't, I won't go along. Like in that moment when the room turns on you and calls you, a bigot or calls you traditionalist or calls you old-fashioned or even says that you're dangerous. In this passage, it says they're actually going to call you like Satan and the son of a demon. And so it's actually a really hostile, dangerous thing, not just annoying or confusing or archaic, but actually your views being seen as dangerous to culture. Like that, That's where we'll start in the text. And then I do think you can make application broadly from there, but we want to hold, we want to hold that center. So, so no cheap application and no, no trafficking, shame, and guilt. But we just want to honor and open the idea that talking about persecution can be kind of challenging for us as a community. So I ho- hope that makes sense. So it makes sense, too, for me that we would just pray again. Um, and I had intended before kind of everything blew up uh, over in Ukraine this week just to stop and pray for the persecuted church. I would still like to do that. I think it's still appropriate, even as we hear a passage about persecution, just to calm our hearts and ask for God to be with our brothers and sisters around the world. And then we can also pray about what's happening in Ukraine one more time. There's a prayer guide on our website on the little top banners there that will give you some ideas about how to pray. Because if you're like me, you just feel stunned and don't understand what's going on and how to engage it. So there's some prayer guides for you there. So this morning, even in our confusion, we'll just bring our questions to God and ask Him to meet and encounter us. So, so would you bow your head with me again? Give you just a second. Would you pray both for the persecuted church around the world, which means the places in the world where people actually face violence because of their faith. I just want to pray for that. And then as your heart kind of goes from there to what's happening in the rest of the world where there's crisis, would you pray for those as well? And then I'll I'll pray over us. Let me just give you just a few seconds to do that in a few sentences in your heart.
Holy Spirit, would you actually give us capacity now to hold on to these things? These are big topics for a random Sunday morning, and most of us weren't prepared to go here today. So would you let us catch our breath, and would you speak to us? We do want to pray for things around the world. We pray for those who are facing all kinds of pain, hurt, trauma, those who are facing loss, those who their faith has cost them life and loved ones and jobs and homes and esteem and resources. We pray for help. Would you come and show mercy, sustain your church and increase their witness? And for those who this morning just feel so disoriented, think about the church in Ukraine, trying to gather in some ways, trying to pray in some ways, trying to trust you in some ways. Would you be with your people who are in crisis? And then in a lot of ways, we have things in our lives that also really matter to you. So, so would you make application to our hearts, even while we try to honor the, the severity of this text? Um, give us grace in that space, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, I don't imagine like one sermon on persecution and suffering is like going to turn the tide in our culture or in our church. But I do think what we're going to happen, what we're asking God to do in the next couple of weeks is to plant some seeds in our hearts that over the years as we cultivate them as a community will actually produce kind of a love for Jesus that does eclipse comfort and does make it make it make sense for us to suffer loss for our faith. And and as I said, I realize not everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus, and so this already feels kind of strange just to walk into a building. You weren't expecting a name tag. You weren't expecting to pass the peace. You weren't expecting persecution. Like, I'm, I part of us like apologize. Part of us to say welcome. Like, I'm not exactly sure how to engage that, but but I realize this topic may feel really strange to you, but maybe it would speak to you about the importance of why we gather. I know it can be confusing to watch the American church and maybe interact with your friends at work and. Sometimes they feel maybe small or petty or like they're focused on the wrong things. And so maybe just even this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let the awkwardness of this text and the encouragement and kind of recalibration that happens in it kind of speak to you about what you've been wondering. Like, does God actually matter and does he exist? And does what the Bible talks about really make a difference in my life? I think this text would speak really clearly to you if you're not a follower of Christ, that there's something about following Jesus that is worth even giving your whole life to it's not a new set of doctrines or beliefs that you could just get better at or be more impressive or fix something in your life. It's actually a hope that Christ offers you because of what he's done and that changes everything. So, so God's people have found that worth suffering for and have found actually the witness of that to tell those who don't know that we're worth suffering for. So, so that's where we're going this morning. And I think in a lot of ways it really is a text about expectations. Jesus last week told his disciples that he's going to send them out with his power to be on his mission. He called these people. He told them where to go. He told them how to go when they went there. And now it really is kind of talking about what, what it will be like as they go. And so it's a, it's a section on a sermon about expectations. And if you've heard me ever talk about marriage, you, you know part of our story is that we got blown up our first year of marriage in large part because of expectations. Things that we thought marriage was, that it never was intended to be, things that we thought we were, that, that we actually weren't, things that we were longing for the other person to be for us that they couldn't be. And so our first year of marriage was really, really, really hard. And last week with our kind of new marriage, I shared some of that story and we'll gather again tonight to kind of finish some of that. But, but it was massive for me to step into an intimate relationship and have my whole world flipped upside down. I actually went to a counselor within just a couple of months of our marriage and he pulled a book off of his shelf and that 
book was creased, the binding was creased to a section on expectations. And he just said, hey man, you've got lots of things that you brought into marriage thinking that it was going to satisfy, complete, thinking that you were amazing, thinking this was about building your esteem and she being proud of you. And none of that has happened, by the way. It's still really worth it, but it's really different than what you thought. And now to those of you who are going like, dude, what a unromantic person like I I get it like to say that marriage isn't what you thought it was going to be I don't think actually lowers it but actually elevates it to say it's, it's actually more than you thought it was but it's different than what you thought it was in the same ways our, our faith is kind of like that sometimes we we prayed a prayer and trusted Jesus to avoid some sort of future punishment and and it is that it's not less than that but it's it's more than that and so Jesus is really dealing with his disciples expectations I think he's trying to encourage them I think he's trying to warn them and I also think there's an invitation in this and a way to recalibrate their hearts I think he wants to help these people know when they step out on mission what to expect because to say that marriage is different than you thought isn't to be unromantic it's actually frees you to pursue what marriage actually is for and the bible would say it's this context in this arena that we live out our faith and the good news of the gospel we actually proclaim the good news of being loved at someone else's expense that's what happens in a marriage and so I think that's actually incredibly romantic right what's more romantic about the love of God that we hear in the gospel than the self-sacrifice that Jesus the groom does for his people okay from that place then as we talk about expectations I actually want to elevate what it means to follow Jesus not not just give you like the warning label of the side effects that you should be careful of I think this invitation is for all of us to step towards something actually more beautiful than you imagined because God is not just after your moral behavior changing he's not just after you cleaning up your act and stop embarrassing yourself he's not just after you stopping hurting those around you he wants your heart forever and eternity And he wants you to be on mission with him to tell their people who are lost and hopeless that there is hope for them, not just in this life, but in the one to come. And we will spend just a few short years here on this globe and the rest of our life in one of two places, either in perfect relationship with God, redeemed, forgiven, loved, adored, being romanced for eternity, or separated from God, facing the just wrath of our sin. And that that will also be eternal. And the Bible is very clear about both of those, which is why he sends people out to tell the good news, not wanting any to perish, but they would hear the good news so they could respond. And so there's something beautiful and honoring, even if it's reorienting and disorienting and recalibrating and a warning to say to God's people, hey, come and join Messiah on his mission to come and rescue and speak the good news. So if that's kind of an introduction, then what I want us to see is just three things in this text. We're going to see a realistic posture that Jesus tells them to have. We're going to see a relational promise, and we're going to see a reason to persevere. So jump with me in the text. If you close your Bible, it's on page 815 of that black one. This is Matthew chapter 10. We'll be in verse 16. He starts with this realistic posture. Again, Jesus sends them out with expectations kind of set the way they're supposed to be. He says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep amidst wolves. Like if you're trying to gather a team and you're trying to get people on your side, it's probably not your opening line. 
But as he's just been telling them about what they're going to do, and it actually sounds fairly amazing, like jump up a couple of verses into chapter 10. He says in verse 7, like, I want you to go out and proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. Like, that's pretty powerful, pretty amazing. And then he says, hey, as you go, the way I'm sending you is in this posture of dependence, this posture of frailty. It actually moves from a place where they were going to be welcomed to a place where they were going to actually be shown hostility. He says, I'm sending you out not to be awesome and amazing among your neighbors. I'm sending you out dependent. I'm sending you out vulnerable. I'm sending you out into a world that actually has some hostility. Here's what one scholar says. It says, Jesus gave the 12 the power over sickness and uncleanliness and death and the devil But he didn't give them the power to escape persecution. Persecution is actually integral to mission. There is no mission without it. Jesus has already said in the Beatitudes, which is a reference to the Sermon on the Mount, that's chapter 5 of Matthew, which we were in like six months ago or something, a long time ago we were there. He says this, that we are blessed if we're persecuted. He starts his sermon back then in chapter 5 with that. You're blessed if you are persecuted, if you're hated, if you're slandered, if you're killed. Because this is precisely what happened to the prophets. If we want to share in the fullness of the blessing of the kingdom, we're going to have to share in the sufferings of the king as well. So Jesus sets them up with this realistic posture to see that they're stepping into a dangerous space where they are dependent, where they're actually vulnerable. All right, so every Sunday morning, I spend just a lot of time in prayer. I normally get distracted, so I go for like a prayer walk just to kind of clear my mind and I pray for you, I pray for our service, I pray for me, I pray for those who don't know Jesus, I pray for our children's work, I just kind of pray for a long time. And I normally pray around 7. This morning though, I got up early and I felt really distracted, so I went and walked quite a bit earlier. So around 4 a.m., I'm walking the neighborhood, which is earlier than normal. So I was surprised as I'm walking with my little dog to encounter two wolves. They're probably coyotes, but for this illustration on this Sunday, they, they, were, they were wolves. So I'm walking in the dark with my little dog, which is like breakfast on a leash, right, for these coyotes. And here are these two beasts. They're off in the distance. I don't want to like too dramatize it. But, but it caught my attention. And I'll tell you this, man, I did stop for a second. Like there was a little bit of an elevated heart rate. I don't think I was in any imminent danger. And little Winnie, like I would have taken her off the leash. And she's pretty fast. She could have run. I don't know if she was faster than me, but she, she would have run away from them. But we were in this space where seeing them just prompted me to think just for a moment about danger. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm sending you out on this mission, and I want you to understand the kind of gravity of this mission. There's actually a danger. So then he says, the rest of verse 16, the way he's sending them out is to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Kind of two really interesting things, right? Two opposites, actually, serpents and doves. When you think about those two creatures. One is crafty, one is conniving, one is dangerous, one is scary, one is innocent, one is peaceful, one coos at you. When you see a dove, you don't jump and freak out. When you see a snake, that's exactly what you do. And so just stop for a second and go, what's Jesus saying in this? Because it seems like a paradox. Now now you want to be careful not to interpret this as Jesus saying, go with duplicity. Sometimes be shrewd like a serpent and sometimes be As innocent as a dove, like a church, be dove-like. But man, if you're doing a business deal, be really shrewd. Like he's not talking about duplicity. He's talking about a paradox, about about embodying at the same time both a wisdom and 
an innocence? Do you have in your mind a shrewdness about the world around us and and a posture of this dependent kind of uh, space where you realize you, you have needs and you're vulnerable? And Jesus says, because I'm sending you out into a dangerous place, you need to embody both of those. Listen to what one other scholar said. He says this, faced with this awesome challenge, Jesus's sharp advice to his followers was be shrewd as snakes, but innocent like doves. Christians often find it easy to be one or the other, but seldom both. Without innocence, shrewdness becomes manipulative. Without shrewdness, innocence becomes naivety. Though we face different crises and different problems of those in the first century, we still need that finely balanced character reflecting so remarkably that of Jesus himself. If we are in any way to face what he faced and to share in his work, we need to be sure that our own life becomes embodied in what was about his life, that we would share in the life of Jesus and embody both what he embodied. Jesus sends out his disciples with this realistic posture. It's, it's a sense of him saying, hey, there's a danger, which is, again, a record scratch to where we were last week, and to say there's a vulnerableness to who you are. And I think he does that so then when he goes into this next section to talk about the kind of pain and the kind of fear and the kind of persecution, they're not caught off guard. Because you know what it's like to be caught off guard? You don't actually act your best sometimes. That fight or flight or freeze or fawn response when anxiety hits and your heart rate goes up, you normally reflexively act. But if you've thought about the situation, then when the danger comes, you can actually respond more more thoughtfully so jesus says to his disciples hey i'm sending you out of danger beware and as you go hold on to both an innocence and a shrewdness this word innocence has has with it a sense of purity uh, not not mixing things together it has actually a kind of holiness in it so he's saying i want you to go out into the world and live holy lives even though the world will try to destroy you and this word is picked up lots of places in the new testament let me just give you Two of them. If you're taking notes, write down Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to these early Christians. He says, Be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So it's not just a character for character's sake, it's actually a witness to be the kind of people that endure suffering and hardship with innocence actually communicates to the world something about the beauty and glory of the God that you serve. Here's another one, Romans 16, 19, if you're taking notes. Romans 16, 19 says this, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. We see living in this world takes both a wisdom and a shrewdness and an innocence and a holiness, right? Not just to fall naively into suffering, but to live courageous lives so we actually engage in such a way that we're not caught off guard or surprised. He starts with this realistic posture. There's no bait and switch with Jesus. It's not like he entices you with all your sins forgiven and golden streets and he springs on you suffering and hardship and dying to yourself. He is so upfront all throughout the Gospels, that to come and accept Christ as Lord is to go to war, war on sin, war on self, war on the world, war on Satan, world on shame, war on shame and, and the dysfunction that we have, but, but also actually engaging in the world in ways that actually cost us. So a realistic posture he starts with in verse 
16. And that leads to this relational promise because it sounds pretty dark. So he says, verse 17, So beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and they'll flog you in their synagogues. And they'll be dragged, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness about me before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So he says, hey, I'm sending you out. I want you to embody this kind of dual understanding of an innocence and a shrewdness. Be, be like serpents and doves at the same time, realizing it's a dangerous world. And as you go, beware and know that I'm with you. He makes a relational promise to be with his people. And here comes in another understanding of the Christian faith. Jesus doesn't promise us escape from what is scary and hard and dangerous. He promises to be with us in the middle of it. His answer to anxiety is not, don't be anxious, I'm going to get you out of this. It's don't be anxious of what you're supposed to say, because when it's time to say it, I'm going to be there with you, and I'm going to give you what you need by my spirit. There's this relational promise that God is the kind of God who goes through us to the valley of the shadow of death, not, not around it and waits for us on the other side. So whatever you're facing, and I know it's appropriate to pray, God, would you stop this? Would you get us out? We should pray for justice in Ukraine. We should pray for the persecuted church. You should pray for what hurts in your life. And as you pray that, stop and recognize that Jesus promises by his spirit to be there with you in that moment. The promise of Christianity, friends, is not to get you out of the hard things. It's for God to be with you in the middle of the hard things. And I'll just say it now. We'll come there at the end. Jesus actually goes through hard things on our behalf. And to follow him is to follow him all the way to the cross where we die to self. If that's the way our leader was, he makes the logical connection. That's what it means to follow him. Hey, just saying that up front helps you a ton when you face suffering and persecution. Think about the times at work already. And there's not really laws yet in place, and there's not really statutes yet in place, but think about the times already at work or with your friends or with your family when heat comes and you're tempted to pull back. You just let it fly in the room. You don't say anything. You don't challenge it. Someone asks your opinion and you say, oh, I haven't really thought about it very much. And in those moments, you actually have thought about the glory of Jesus and how it applies to the space of, of suffering or the space of, of human dignity. And in that spot, you're tempted to just let it slide. Jesus is saying, hey, in that moment, I'm not just working to get you out of that. I'm actually there with you. And the promise is that I will tell you what to say in that moment. It's this promise that he's going to be there. And this is the kind of thing that we see throughout the scriptures. So if you've been in our Bible reading plan, we just finished up with Exodus. And you have this pattern of manna where God feeds his people every morning. And he doesn't give them more than they need. He just gives them what they need for the day. He trains a posture of dependence, right? You're being sent out like sheep among wolves. You're in this vulnerable place. But as you're in that vulnerable place, I'm going to meet your needs. You're in this desert for 40 years. You can't feed yourself. Hey, every morning you wake up, I will have food on the ground ready for you. He's training them in this posture of dependence so actually find him to be sufficient for us. And that actually trains our heart in the moment to resist shying away from our faith and our witness of Christ because we've seen him to already be close and real and valuable and sustaining and present with us. Jesus makes the promise, even in the Great Commission, hey, go and make disciples of all nations. And as you go, I'm going to be with you even to the end 
of the age. He sends them out all over the globe, and his promise is, I'm going to be with you. Now, if you think about where he's at in his human body, this is first century, and you're like, I don't see him. How is he with us? He says, I'm with you by the spirit of my father. Did you see that? He says that he's there by the spirit of his father in verse 20. For it's not you speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So here's this concept. When the Old Testament talks about what we needed, it said our hearts were so hard they were like stone. And no amount of laws or regulations or sacrifices or obedience could actually soften that heart. We needed a new heart. So the promise was that Messiah was going to come and take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh and fill us with his spirit. Jesus comes on the scene. He says and does what Messiah said he was going to do. In those spaces, we're watching him, and then he begins to teach us. And in places like John 14 and in John 16, he says, hey, it's good for you that I actually go away. He's predicting his own death. He says, and when I go away, it's better for you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you who's going to come and live inside of you. So rather than just walking with Jesus, sitting around the campfire with Jesus, Jesus promises God's very presence inside of his people. And it maybe feels kind of mystical and maybe kind of confusing, but just stop and just own the reality of that. He's saying for God's people, his very presence is, is with them. It's, it's actually inside of them, right? It's inside their, their chest and not one that you could see in a CAT scan. It's actually deeper than that. It's more than just a physical location. It's the essence of God with you in spaces where you are not Alone. So Jesus says, again, in the Great Commission, he's going to send them out. And he's going to be with them for forever. He's promising this helper. In that space, what that does for us, even with these expectations, is says the promise of God is not that he's going to get me around this, but it's actually going to take me through it in a way that he is with me. And Jesus wants us to see that's actually better. It's better to go through really hard things with Jesus than to not go through hard things and not have Jesus. And there's actually something that we learn about Jesus in those spaces, right? When we were talking about hope a few weeks ago, we looked in Matthew or in Romans chapter 5, and he says that suffering produces stuff inside of us, character and perseverance, and it actually leads towards hope. There are things that only happen in the face of pain and persecution where you test your faith, have God show up and be faithful that actually then begins to strengthen you. He's promising something deeper. He's promising to actually be with them. And he says he's going to help them. He sets their expectations and sends them out realistically. And then he promises to actually be present with them in such a way that they're they're cared for. So, So when the church actually suffers, actually the gospel goes forward. When people prove that Christ is worthy of suffering... Actually, the gospel spreads. Just this week was praying through Persecuted Church, and there's a website called Voice of the Martyrs that tells just story after story after story of modern-day situations. And what I was blown away by was the prayer requests on that website are for deliverance for sure, but the first one is for conversion and salvation for the persecutors, and then for resources to come and help share the gospel because they're running out of Bibles as they're being persecuted, trying to tell people how amazing God is. There's something about that kind of suffering that actually pushes the gospel forward, that Jesus is inviting his people into, that there's a way that we actually engage with the mission of God only through suffering. And it has this refining thing for you. It has this changing thing for you where you realize the other stuff that you've loved actually could never satisfy. He's the one who actually could, and it's his presence 
that you need. And that's the very thing he promises to give to his people. And it is the blood-soaked soil from martyrs being executed that the gospel goes forward and people are born in the new life. It is in that space. And Jesus just says, this is the way it goes. He's just really clear. This is the expectation. This is the pattern. It is a pattern of, of a seed dying first so that it can actually be born and live. And he patterns after for his people, his own life and his own death to say, this is the way it is with me. It's the way it will be with you. And you're not alone just doing hard things for hard things sake. I am actually with you in ways that actually begin to change you. So here's one thing I'd love to kind of put in front of us as an application. There's something about now cultivating your connection to God, your communion with God, to learn to hear his voice and to trust him before you're facing such challenging, overwhelming situations. God will be faithful if you haven't cultivated that. But, but just imagine like standing before a governor or a council, right? You're, you're in chains. And don't think like that scene in Elf when he's waiting for his dad to come and the guys are doing pull-ups and playing cards. That's not prison in the first century. Think dirty. Think putrid. Think hunger. Think darkness. Think change. Think torture. Think pain. And you're standing there feeble in your body before those who actually with a motion of their hand could end your life. And he says, that's the place where I'm going to give you words. Now, if you're like me, man, my mind's all over the place. My heart is over the place. I'm, I'm in a thousand spaces in my head as I stand there before somebody in that kind of condition. What would it be like to be able to calm our hearts to hear the voice of the Spirit because you had trained yourself now at your dining room table and in your comfy chair and at your office to hear the voice of God? Because you'll have all kinds of things clamoring in your head, even like, is it really worth it? Like, should I even do this? Is Jesus really real? Right? You would hear those voices in your head in that moment. And to have a heart that's trained to hear the voice of the Spirit is actually something that we can and should be cultivating now in our communion. I think an application for us who aren't facing persecution now is to, to cultivate an awareness of the Spirit speaking to us. Because that same spirit that's available in those moments of crisis is available to you now because Christ promises to be with you always. Not just in those moments, but even, even now. So teenagers, when you face places of insecurity and uncertainty, when you're wrestling with your identity, when you're trying to be accepted, in that space, Jesus is there. Couples facing infertility, those wrestling with marriage, those who wish they were married, those who are hurting in their bodies because of disease, in those places, Jesus promises to be with you. It's a relational promise to his people. And again, it's in first big suffering and persecution. And then we, from that big place, we make application to the small areas of our life. This is maybe like a terrible illustration, but I was trying to think about a way to capture this. It flows downstream from something really big and catastrophic to something simple, but it doesn't flow upstream. And here's what I mean. If you've ever faced something that's really hard and someone tries to comfort you and they say, oh, I know exactly what you mean. And then they tell you some like lame thing they've experienced. Like, like you face the death of a friend. They go, oh man, I know exactly what you mean. This cat I had when I was seven. You're like, dude, that is not, that is not the same thing. Now, I do think we make application from the loss of a loved one to smaller losses that we face, but I don't think it goes back up the other direction. 
By taking time just to name hate in persecuted places, the most intense spot you could imagine, that's the spot Jesus promises to be with you in his spirit. means to a lesser degree in those other spaces that are more common, he's also there with you. If he's going to be there in that major moment, then it's not hard for him to be with you in those everyday common mundane moments. Christ promises his relational presence to his people as he sends them out. Whether that's a Tuesday in Overland Park, whether that's in a cubicle or it's an online Zoom, whether it's with a family friend, somebody asking you questions about your faith, it's somebody questioning their sexuality, it's somebody talking about the traditions of the church in our country, someone naming places where the church actually has a spoiled reputation, in those spots where you feel lots of anxiety, he says, hey, don't be anxious in that place. It's a command, don't be anxious, because I'm going to be with you and I'm going to speak to you. So, so relational promise is the second thing that I want you to see. And then really quickly, and I'm just going to like name it and we'll unpack it more next week. He gives them the reason to persevere. Let me just read the whole text. We're going to focus on verses 24 and 25. Look in verse 21. After he promises to be with them, he says it's going to get pretty dark, right? So he says, says, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all. It's going to go from your immediate family to everybody around you. You'll be hated for my namesake, right? Because you're bearing witness about who the king is. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master, Jesus himself, of the house of Beelzebub, even accusing him of, of doing miracles by Satan's power, which we saw in chapter 9, how much more will they malign those of his household? There's this reason to persevere, and it simply is this, that Jesus persevered on our behalf. We'll unpack more next week, and we're slowing down to plant some seeds. The reason why we're going slow in this one sermon and making it four is to take some time to go, hey, what does that actually mean? What does it look like to be in those spaces? But today, as we talk about this relational presence that we're given and this, this promise of being like this realistic posture, to stop and say, Jesus embodied what we needed. He went through what we needed so that salvation could actually be accomplished. He showed us the path. He, he persevered in such a way that makes our perseverance possible. And to follow the teacher, to be an apprentice of Jesus, is to expect those things in your life. We can just stop there for a moment. We can thank Jesus for his presence. We can thank him for shooting us straight to kind of help us understand kind of what he's saying it's going to be like and giving us the right posture. And we can thank him that he was willing to stand before governors and councils, to be accused of even death, going all the way to the cross on our behalf to bear the penalty for our sin so that you and I wouldn't have to bear that penalty ourselves. He says, hey, just expect the path of Jesus all the way to the end. And we just stop today and go, oh, that path that Jesus went down, he saw it worth it for our salvation. Scriptures even say for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's something beautiful about the pattern of Jesus being willing to suffer for us that actually helps these promises be more plausible to you. To stop and remember that he broke his body and shed his blood. He's not just giving commands to you. He actually did it himself in such a way that actually emboldens you, changes you, forgives you, and makes it possible for him to actually be with you. So, so you have lots of questions. I've got lots of questions. There's a lot for us to wrestle with 
as a community, but let's set all those questions on the foundation of what Jesus did as the suffering servant willing to be persecuted on our behalf to grant us salvation. So from that space, take a deep breath. I want to invite you to take communion as the first place to make some application. Communion is the declaration that this persecuted Jesus that went all the way to prison and torture died didn't stay dead, he rose again, and it's through his broken body and shed blood that he purchased our salvation. And by trusting in him, we're saved and we're forgiven and we're free. That's how we actually get his presence. So the bread represents his broken body and the juice represents his shed blood. We're going to go back to kind of coming forward to take communion this Sunday. And so you'll actually come in line. There'll be a little basket full of pieces of bread. You'll pick up one of those and someone will say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And you'll dip it in the cup and they'll say this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And as you take that, remember what he's done to nourish, to rescue, to make these promises possible, and to actually model for you that he was willing to go all that way. And that does something about reorienting kind of what you long for and what you hope for. Bring your questions to communion as you wrestle with Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would help you kind of engage this time. But communion is for those who are trusting in Christ. And as I say that, man, if you're ready today to trust him, then I want to invite you to come forward, take communion, let's talk afterward. But for those not yet there, just sit and pray. For those who are trusting Christ, come take communion. And as you come, would you come and ask Jesus to make more application to your heart rooted in what he's done for you on the cross? Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing together as the servers come here in the front. You'll come down these center aisles and then go back out these side aisles. There's gluten-free over here to my right, your left. And there's also some of those individual cups. If you're more comfortable with that than standing in line, you can come and grab one of those cups that has kind of the juice and wafer together. Let me pray for us, then we'll sing and we'll take communion. Jesus, we say thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thanks for speaking these words to your first followers. Thanks for the application they make to us. Thanks that you went all the way to the cross for us. You were willing to suffer to face persecution and even torture and death, to purchase salvation for us. We just start there and say thank you. And from that place, would you help us engage you? Would you stir faith in the room for where we need it? Would you help us where we're struggling? Would you give actually endurance to your people in this space? So nourish us with your broken body and shed blood, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's sing together. Come when you're ready.